we have this kind of weird uh, phrase that we use, uh, the elephant in the room. I'm sure you all have heard that. Like, uh, you know, there's kind of an elephant in the room here that we need to address. Or, uh, you know, I hate to bring up the elephant in the room. You know that weird, I don't even know where it came from. I could have looked it up this week. But it's like this weird thing. You know, can you imagine that? Like, it, you know, we're all talking and it's like, can we just talk about the elephant in the room over there? You know, it's just like kind of an elephant sitting in the corner, and we just need to talk about it. It's like something that we all kind of feel is there, or it's just sitting there, we all see it, but we're all not talking about it. And it's like, we just need to address the elephant in the room here. And you think about that, it's like something that somebody's done, or something that somebody's said, and you feel like, we need to talk about this, but everyone's sitting there, maybe a little awkwardly, maybe kind of like um, wondering, should we say something? Like, I need to say something, what should I say? And we need to address this elephant in the room. It's, it's there, somebody said something they shouldn't have or done something they shouldn't have. And what does it take to do that well? If somebody's said something they shouldn't have said, they've said something offensive, they've done something offensive, they, uh, you're like, we need to address this attitude they have. We need to address this wrong they've done. They've spoken to somebody they sh- in a way they shouldn't have spoken to them. It's like, we need to talk about that. Or they're dressing in a way they shouldn't have dressed. I mean, we need to talk to them about that. And there's this elephant in the room where it's like, hey, at our last meeting, you know, Jill, you talked to Bill. Jill, Jill, you talked to Bill in a way you shouldn't have. And he's like this elephant in the room. There's this tension. Like, we need to talk about this. And what does it take to be able to do that well, to be able to talk about the elephant in the room well. What, what attitude do we need? What, how do we need to think about our purpose in doing that? What kind of priorities do we need? Like my priority in doing this is to do this. Is it to expose the person, shame the person? Is it for their good? Is it uh, I want to honor God in doing this? What, it, you know, what do we need to be able to do that well? And there's maybe like some spectrums we have when it comes to addressing the elephant in the room. Some of us are maybe too afraid we feel like we never do it. Like, okay, in my fam- when I get together for family gatherings, you know, uncle so-and-so is always saying things inappropriate, but I'm always too afraid to speak out about it. They're just always saying things they shouldn't do, say or doing things they shouldn't do, but I'm always too afraid. Or at work, there's always this person that makes inappropriate jokes, and I kind of sit there and, you know, I kind of have like an uncomfortable, I can't do an uncomfortable grin. You get it, but you know. Now we can cover our uncomfortable grins with our mask, but you have that uncomfortable grin and you're kind of like, I shouldn't be grinning at this and I don't really want them to be doing this, but I'm too afraid to speak up. But then some of us are on the other end where we're always too eager. Like we always jump on, when somebody's doing something wrong, I'm going to hop right in there and I'm going to really tell them, like, you shouldn't be doing that. Hey, you know, you always put the salt cap on the wrong way and you need to fix that. You know, we, it's like any little thing, we're like too eager to correct something. Like it's like not even an elephant, it's like, hey, I found a, I found a termite in the room and I'm going to you know, point out the termite in the room or whatever it is. Like some of us are too afraid, some of us are too eager. And then when we're on the receiving end, how are you on the receiving end when you are the person that has created the elephant in the room? Like, okay, are you the person that's like, somebody's like, hey, uh, last time we were together uh, at you know, our gospel community gathering, uh, you did this thing, and it, that wasn't really it wasn't really right. Are you like getting mad? Are you the person that gets mad on you're on that end of the spectrum, or you just justify and defend your actions? Well, I was having a I was having a really bad day, and I was really stressed, and so 
So that's why I did that. Are you on that end of the spectrum? Or are you on the end of the spectrum where somebody points out something you did wrong, or like, hey, there's this thing that has happened, and you're on the end of the spectrum where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm just worthless. And I, you know, I, you just kind of go on that, that end of it. Are you like the justifier and the defender of your actions? Or are you the person that just goes, like, I'm just a terrible person and I'm worthless and uh, you're just crushed by it? And then there's kind of this other spectrum that's like responsibility. Like, okay, elephant's in the room and it's like, so and so is doing stuff at work. They make racist jokes or sexist jokes. And it's like, you know what? I'm not responsible for this. You know, I don't have any responsibility here. That's for the boss to figure out. That's for you know somebody else to figure out. In this family, you know, I'm not the grandpa here. I'm not the patriarch of this family. I'm not the person in charge here. That's that's not my business here. That's for a parent to figure out. Or you have this kid that's acting out. Yeah, elephant in the room. This kid is bad, behaving badly. You know, what? I'm not the parent. So I'm not responsible. You're on that end of the spectrum, or you might be on the spectrum. The other end, where you're like, I feel responsible for everything. Everything I see, like I feel like I need to jump in there and I need to address it. Or you might be somewhere in the middle. And for me, I tend to be uh, feel a little too eager and a little too responsible. Uh, like, okay, I feel kind of responsible for a lot of things I see, but at the same time, I also, you know, sometimes I go back and forth. It's like I also feel afraid of doing it wrong. Like, okay, I feel very responsible. Uh, so I should take up the eager part. I feel very responsible, but I also feel afraid of it. Well, what if I do this wrong? What if I upset them? What if they, you know, they react the wrong way? Like, so I have all these fears. I feel very responsible for the things I see, but I also have all these fears of, like, I need to do it the right way, and so often I can feel a, a lack of inaction there. And I also tend to be on the spectrum of not feeling crushed, but feel when people tell me things, but, okay, like, Here's the reasons I did that, defending and justifying. And so which one are you? When people, when you see something wrong, what are you filled with? Are you filled with this, like, uh, that's not up to me? Or are you filled with this uh, feeling of, like, well, I'm too afraid to do anything about it? Or are you filled with this, like, anger and this eagerness and this over-responsibility of, like, I need to take care of all of it? As we go into this third week of our series called Micah, who is a God like you, we are looking at this Old Testament prophet who is called to be the spokesman for God, the spokesperson for God. His name means, who is like the Lord? And while he knows, my job is to declare to Israel, God's people, their sin and transgression, how have they broken trust with God, how have they missed the mark on living for God. He also knows there's no God like the Lord in giving up forgiveness when you turn back to God. And we've seen Micah is a person who addresses the elephant in the room. In the first chapter, we see he confronts the northern kingdom of Israel, telling him, you guys have turned away from the Lord, you've turned from God to worship these idols, and now destruction is coming. And then he confronts the southern kingdom of Judah. You know, Israel had been one kingdom at first, but then after Solomon, his son really messes up, and it splits off into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And he says, northern kingdom, you've turned from God, so God's turning against you. Southern kingdom, that same disease of worshiping false gods has come to you, God's turning against you, too, if you keep going on this path. The same destruction is going to come against you. And then we see the Assyrian Empire does invade the northern kingdom of Israel and takes them out. And then the, Micah says, it's coming to you, too, Judah, where he's living. He's saying, Judah, it's coming to us, too, if we don't turn and go a different way. In chapter 2, he confronts them about, you've turned from God, and that has turned you into takers 
into truth twisters and into enemies of those you're supposed to be loving. They've trashed their nation. They're treating people terribly. And because of that, the threat of invasion and exile is right at their doorstep. That was always what God said. If you turn from me, go read the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, God says it explicitly. He says, you must stay loyal to me. If you turn and worship idols, this is the consequence. You will leave the land. I will take you out of it. You will go into exile. Out of it. You will go into captivity. It's very clear. And so put yourself in Micah's shoes for a minute. What would it be like to tell people the kind of things that he told them? Imagine the task that God gave him. You know, Imagine if God gave you this task. To tell our mayor and city officials to go up to them and say, you aren't running this city right. And if you don't correct things, a tornado is going to come through Woodstock and wipe out half the city. And it's because of you. Imagine if you were like, the word of the Lord came to me, and I just feel this overwhelming sense of responsibility that God is so clearly telling me, I need to go up to our city government and tell them, God's going to wipe out this city if you don't turn this around with a tornado. He's just going to wipe it out. Can you imagine that being your job? Can you imagine saying that? What did it take for Micah to be able to do what he did? What did it take for him to confront what he saw going on around him? How is he able to address this elephant in the room that he's seeing going on in his nation and in the leadership? And so like Micah in his day, there's things that could be going on in our lives or in our gospel communities or in our church or in our world uh, that we must not ignore. And we need to learn how to address the elephant in the room in whatever situation it is. So our big idea for today is this. God turns away from those who turn from justice. God turns away from those who turn from justice. And Micah addresses three groups of people. And as he addresses each group, his concern in each one is justice. And he says, You've all, each of you has turned from it. God turns away from those who turn from justice. And justice is a loaded word for us today. It's a loaded word in the Bible. And so hopefully I can do it justice. So not only has 2020 been uh, a year of the pandemic, it's also been a year of, of racial tension since the, the murder of George Floyd. We, there's been this outburst of both protests and riot, and much of it is done in the name of justice. And if you look at uh, organizations' websites like Black Lives Matter, they say we're fighting for freedom and liberation and justice. And, and not just in the, those sorts of movements, but uh, even, I'm not going to say much about this, but even if you think about the Supreme Court nominations, that three of them have happened, uh, or appointments that have happened in the past four years under President Trump. Supreme Court justices, the highest court in the land that are supposed to be giving us precedent in the way that justice is being administered. So justice has been a big deal in our time uh, in these days. And because justice is a loaded word these days, it's one of the reasons I wanted to go through a book like Micah, because in the prophets, justice is a big deal. It's a loaded word in the Bible, and it's a big deal in the prophets. And it's, a load, it's a word loaded with meaning for God, the people of Israel, and the prophets. And the lack of justice is one of the primary sins that the prophets speak against. And when justice is lacking, it's a sure sign 
that the people have turned from God. And so, as we go through this passage, we're going to see what does justice and what does it mean? How does God define it? So let's begin looking at our passage to get an idea. So first, Micah addresses the cannibalistic leaders in verses 1 through 4. These are cannibalistic leaders in Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. So we begin in verse 1. It says, And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Micah begins with an address. The heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. And at this point, the northern kingdom of Israel has been invaded and mostly taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. And so Micah is speaking to leaders of the southern kingdom of Judah, but they can be referred to as Israel uh, as well. And they're Israelites. They're from the people of Israel. And so who are these people he addresses? He, he doesn't say the king explicitly. These are people lower than the king. These are political and civil leaders. And if you look back at Exodus 18, when the nation was in its early days under the leadership of Moses, uh, Moses is there uh, all day long. People would come to Moses with their disputes, and Moses would decide their case between people, and he'd teach them the laws and the statutes of God. He was like their judge. And then Moses' father-in-law came to visit. Maybe you can relate to this, where father-in-laws come and they're like, hey, you're kind of doing this wrong. Uh, I don't know if people have that experience, but... Uh, then he, Moses' father-in-law kind of takes him to the side and says, like, this is crazy. You're going to wear yourself out judging this for people all day, between these people all by yourself. And he tells Moses, you still teach the people about God's law and represent the people before God. Uh, but then he says, look for able men from all the people, uh, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. This is in Exodus 18. And so he sets up, it's like lower courts and higher courts. And this is probably something uh, like this that's going on in Micah's day in the 8th century, like 700 years later after Moses' day. And that's why Micah asked them, is it not for you to know justice? These are the people who are to know God's statutes, to know God's laws, who are to be able men who fear God are trustworthy and hate a bribe. They're to be people who should be making sure people are treated fairly, equally, respectfully, honorably. These men should be examples in society, people who can be trusted. Well, let's see how Micah describes them in verses 3 and 4. So he says, This is not for you to know justice. Verse 2, You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. We just got done with Halloween, but this is you know something you see in a Halloween movie. These are people who instead of hating and loving good, love evil and hate good. They're doing the opposite of what they should be. And then Micah paints this gruesome picture. He describes them as cannibals, like wild beasts just tearing the flesh off of their own people and putting it in a pot and boiling it so they can eat it like a stew. Chopping people up like meat in a pot. These are leaders who are supposed to know justice, but they're devouring their own people, eating them up. Micah's watching them eat their own people. They're supposed to be loving, helping, and protecting them. The people that you're supposed to be able to go to and trust, like, we have this dispute. Can you help us out with it? So what will God do? Verse 4 tells us, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. 
He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. And when court systems go wrong, usually those with the most money and power control them. And in verse 11, we will see that they give judgments for a bribe, which means that poor people in the courts are losing out. Rich and powerful people, like those that Micah addressed in chapter 2, for coveting and taking other people's land, can do whatever they want because they have the money to bribe the court officials. So they're going out, I covet your land, I want it, I desire it, I take it from you by force. The poor people are like, what's going on here? They come, I'm taking you to court, bring you to court, settle this matter between us. Um, and then the rich person says, uh, they bribe the judge. And so now what happens? The poor person's plea doesn't get heard because the judge has been bribed. They have no money. So now they've lost their land. They're not heard in court because this rich person has overpowered them out, out in society. And now in the court, now they don't have any money to be represented. They don't have money to pay off the judges. And so when the poor people come to the courts crying out for help, they get no help from the judges because they have no money. So what will God do? There will be a day when these crooked judges cry out to the Lord for help, but he will not answer them. They haven't answered the people in courts crying out for help, so God will not answer them. Our big idea for today is that God turns away from those who turn from justice. And we see here that God turns a deaf ear to those who turn from justice. So in verses 5 through 8 then, Micah begins addressing the prophets in Israel. And these are prophets preaching for a prophet. P-R-O-F-I-T. Prophets preaching for a prophet in verses 5 through 8. So let's start by reading verse 5. Micah says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So God has a word to these prophets, which is ironic. The prophets are supposed to receive a word from God, but Micah says, Thus says the Lord to the prophets, Instead of leading people to God, they lead God's people astray. And how are they doing that? Micah describes what they do. They cry peace when they have something to eat, but they declare war against these people when they don't have something put into their mouths. In other words, if somebody has something to pay them, if they have money or food or something to give the prophets, the prophet is declaring God's blessing on them. And if somebody doesn't have something to give them, they declare God's curses on them. And so these prophets are being bought with a price. It's like, hey, do you have something good to give me? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Here, here, prophet, here, prophet. Oh, God's blessing on you. You don't, you don't have anything? Poor people, you know, you, God's curses are on you. So these prophets are being preaching for a prophet. If you make the prophet happy, God is happy with you. Again, what position does this put poor people in? If you don't have much money, God's prophets are saying God's curse is on you. If you have money, God's blessings are on you. So poor people are at a disadvantage. So what is God going to do about it? Verse 6 says, Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Micah doesn't even say that they're fakers, but they've gone down a path where they're getting their access to God revoked. And again, the consequence is no answer from God. They're cutting off the poor from God until they will be cut off from God. And then Micah contrasts them with himself in verse 8. 
But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. God's Spirit fills Michael with power, justice, and might. And we're, here we have the word justice again. Unlike the civil leaders and the prophets who can be bought with a price, Micah can't be. Micah loves good and he hates evil. He's filled with these things to declare Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. He tells God's people, how you've transgressed your covenant. He says, you've transgressed your covenant with God. You've broken trust with God. He tells them there's sin. Which means you've missed the mark on living out God's ways in God's world. Micah addresses the elephant in the room. He can do it because he has God's spirit in him. You see our big idea again. God turns from those who turn from justice. He turns a deaf ear to the prophets too. He gives them no answer, just like he gives no answer to the civil leaders. And he also has them sit in darkness. If you're just going to be in darkness, no light for you. In the final verses, Micah addresses all the leaders and the disaster because of the crooked, greedy leaders. Verses 9 through 11 say, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests, priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. These leaders detest justice. Micah says, these judges are supposed to bring clarity to the courts. Prophets are supposed to bring God's light to God's people. But instead, all they do is make crooked all that is straight. And he says they build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. And Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. It's where, you know, that's it's like we talk about our capitals. That's, kind of, that's where government is happening. And in the days of King Hezekiah, which is when this is oracle, or when the sermon is being uh, delivered, uh, Jerusalem had expanded considerably because the northern kingdom had been taken by Assyria. They hadn't taken everybody cap- into captivity. They had taken a lot of the uh, they take a lot of the high-ranking people in the society. They take them out so that they just leave kind of a lot of the lower and middle-class people. So it's like you take all of the the cultural builders out, the priests, the leaders, they take them off into captivity, and they leave the lower people there, and then they bring in people from other nations, and they mix them in, and then that's how the Samaritans come about, is like this kind of other group of people that then the Jews later look down on, and like, you guys are like half-breeds. That's how Samaria happens in the northern kingdom. And so a bunch of the people from the northern kingdom then flee to Jerusalem for help. And so the population of the city swells and gets bigger, and so Hezekiah is like, okay, we got to fix this. So they expand the wall. He builds up a wall to make this uh, better fortified against enemies. So Hezekiah did all these uh, building projects to accommodate this new flood of citizens. And he took extra measures to fortify against the Assyrian Empire that he saw coming as a threat against them. And here Micah points out how the leaders in Jerusalem, how are they getting those projects done? He says, through bloodshed and through iniquity. When projects need to be done quickly by contractors who don't care about their employees, then working conditions will be ignored. Safety is a low priority. You know, OSHA would be you know, going crazy. Wages are low or withheld. Corners are cut. 
property of others will be seized, and in this environment, the poor can be easily taken advantage of. Hey, you guys come over here. You know, come work on this. And then it's like, well, are we going to get paid? Nah, nah. You know, you used to have people start doing stuff, and it's like wages are getting withheld. They don't care the working conditions. Just work all day. And so people are saying, you're killing people. Bloodshed and iniquity. This is crooked. This is messed up. This is twisted. How this is happening? And in verse 11, Micah says, everyone who should be leading the people is doing so for a price. You can't get a ruling in the court in favor of you without a bribe. You can't get taught by a priest without a price. You can't get a good word from God without paying money. And yet Micah says they, they're all leaning on the word, in the, on the Lord. And this word literally means uh, they're reclining at tables. This is how people go and eat together. Um, if you're had a little, you've had like a low table and you're kind of laying by, like leaning on it. And so they're like literally like putting their weight on the Lord, leaning on Him. They're, they're saying, you know, God is with us. We have the temple. No disaster is going to come upon us. God is with us. God is for us. They have this false assurance that nothing bad is going to happen to us. We saw this in the last chapter. You know, we, Micah, you know, stop telling us these messages. Like, God has limitless patience with us. He's got a grace and mercy and love. Like, God's with us. We, we're fine. It's not going to be a disaster. We can, we're going to keep doing whatever we want because God's going to always be here. Take God for granted. But Micah says in verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Because of these leaders who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who are bought with a price, the city will be plowed as a field. Will become a heap of ruins. The mountain where the temple is will become a place where bushes and trees grow. And all this stuff that you've been building up is just going to be gone. And years earlier, they would have heard these similar words in a sermon by Micah, where he said, "You know, the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria." Uh, he talks about that. And he said that's going to become a heap in the open country. We saw it in chapter one. Samaria is going to become a heap in the open country a place for planting vineyards. And now he's saying, Zion, Jerusalem, is going to become plowed as a field, a heap of ruins, the mountain of the Lord, just a place where it's going to be bushes and trees up there. And that came true for Samaria in 722 B.C. when Assyria invaded them. So we see our big idea again. God turns away from those who turn from justice. These people think they are safe in this city that they've built up with bloodshed and iniquity, but they will be destroyed, even though they built it up because they detest justice. So what is justice according to God? See all these contrasts. Justice in the Bible is based on the truth that every human being is made in God's image. And that means every human being has inherent dignity and worth. It's built into us. Every person is made in God's image. It doesn't that dignity and worth doesn't go up and down based on how much money someone has. And there's many Proverbs that speak to us. God is the maker of both the rich and the poor, Proverbs 22 says. And both are made in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, it's every human being made in God's image. And whoever, Proverbs 14.31 says, whoever mistreats the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors their maker. And this was radical in the ancient world. I mean, many people just saw these divides in society 
and this was a radical thing in the, the nation of Israel, that every single person is made in the image of God, and there's not these divides between different people. And our sense of justice in America, people trace it back. And from the ancient world, the Christians and the Jewish people are first ones who are having this idea of like everyone's equal before God, inherent dignity and worth. And people had these divisions between men and women and children and slaves and poor and free fills. There's this, these divisions between people. And Christians and Jewish people from the nation of Israel were the ones saying, no, this is look, it's written here in the Word. Everyone in the image of God. Poor people, women, children, men, everyone in the image. And so these, these movements that happen today in our country and around the world, they're saying, like, no, everyone needs to be treated with inherent worth and dignity. It's founded on Christian principles, whether people remember it or believe that or not. And we see in this passage that justice is undermined when someone is disadvantaged and neglected in society. And in this situation, the, the poor don't have their cases heard in court or judgments rendered in their favor because they don't have money to pay the judges. And the poor don't get access to, uh, I guess they don't get access to God and they don't have the, the same religious um, access either. They don't get to have the, the priests and the prophets dealing with them in the same way because they don't have money. They have poor, they poor receive messages of God's curses upon them because they don't have anything to give the prophets. The poor don't get taught by the priest because they don't have money to pay the price. And in the Bible, justice is both an individual and a corporate thing. Meaning groups, both individuals and groups, need to practice it. And therefore, injustice can happen from individuals and injustice can happen at a group level too. And so loving your neighbors yourself or doing unto others as you would do unto, have them do unto you are laws of justice that we are told as individuals. As we, okay, how do I want to be treated as an image bearer? Now I should treat image bearers in that way. Love others, it's based on that. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments, do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery, can be carried out by individuals. These are laws that are enacting justice, God's justice. But justice can also be carried out by a group or a nation or a system. And injustice can be as well. And so that's why we can talk about systemic injustice today. Just injustice at a, in a system level, like there's a system or an ecosystem of injustice. And so uh, look at this passage. It's not just individuals at work here. You can't just say like, you know, let's just everybody just love each other. But you have to start working at the system level because there's this system here that works to oppress these poor people. There's civil leaders and judges and priests and prophets. There's government and religion and courts. It's, it's this massive system all working together in conjunction, targeting people who don't have money. And so how do you start to unravel that? How do you start to change that whole system? You can't just be like, oh, everyone just kind of like fight injustice in your hearts and like it'll be okay. And no, there's this huge system that needs to be fought uh, in the government and the religious system and, and the courts. It's all working together. And God made laws specifically to protect people that he knew could easily be pushed down like this. And so you see in the prophets and in God's laws where they talk about the poor, the orphan, and the widow as this, this group of people that are vulnerable and needy. And then also talking about the sojourner and stranger, or in other words, foreigners and immigrants that are living amongst the people of Israel. 
or you know, you could say people who don't look like other people. It's like, oh, we're all Jews. Well, you guys are, you guys look different. And so it's easy. So in other words, who are people that are vulnerable and needy? They're not powerful. They don't have much earthly status. They don't have much to offer. They're easily swept off to the side. They're easily used. They're easily taken advantage of. They're easily overpowered. They're easily overlooked. And God had generosity built into the law to take care of these people and to look after them. And not just generosity toward them, but speaking up for them and advocating on their behalf. And so what is happening in Micah's day is terribly offensive to God. And we see Micah speaking out about it. That the poor are being used and abused. They're being silenced in court. They aren't being taken care of. They're being treated as less than, less than in the image of God. These people are just like, oh, poor, well, we, we have money, so we can take advantage of them. We can just quiet them down. We can just use them however we want to. And so we ask ourselves, who are those people for us today? People whom our government or our religion or our courts have failed or that we easily uh, have a lower status. People who are easily overlooked or overpowered or swept off the side or taken advantage of or used. And this is where sometimes we ask, why are, why are people so mad about, and we see the, the protests or the riots that happen, and we say, why are people so mad about that? What's all the, this emotion about? This is where the emotion is, because our, if you think about our country as um, like, a, like a tapestry that was being woven, and at the beginning of when our country was formed, it was being built with slavery of black people. And that when you weave a tapestry like that, like you're weaving this big old rug, and when you weave that into the thread of it, and then one day we just say, like, well, we had the civil rights movement, and so now that's gone. Well, no, you have all these threads. If you wove this big old rug, and you were weaving it from the beginning. Okay, we're going to start here. We're going to start making this country called the United States. And you're weaving slavery of a specific kind of people into it, who are being treated as less than the image of God, and you're weaving that into it, and all of a sudden, well, we just want to take that out of our country. No, those threads are now interlinked with all these other threads, and so now how are you going to get that out? It's all built into this system, intertwined into government and religion, into how people think in our culture and our society, and so now that's what people are protesting and being angry about. That's where the emotion comes from, because they're saying, we still see it. It's still in there. We need to get it out of there. And that's where, that's why people are feeling that way. Why people are so upset. And so this is something for us that we need to say, okay, that's something that a lot of people are talking about. And do we care about that? That this is something our country has done where we've pushed um, uh, black people um, to the side yeah, as a lower status in the history of our country. And something else is, um, I love that God let us have a gospel community uh, focused on Crossroads Nursing Home because these are people in nursing homes are easily swept aside, ignored, and forgotten. They're easily seen as, as having nothing to offer. And so we can walk right by them, move on to someone else that has something offer us. So I love that God led us there. I feel like God clearly led our gospel community when it was one, clearly led us there. And I'm happy that we are continuing there. It's not like, well, we can't go there because of coronavirus, and so 
Well, let's just move on to somebody that we can go physically meet with. And so I'm so happy that God led us to them. Because it's like, well, it's just, it's just easy to like dump people at a nursing home and be like, well, they're forgotten. They can't come to our church building, so you know, let's forget about them. Justice, and when the prophets wanted to assess, come to the nation of Israel and say, okay, uh, I'm a spokesperson for God. You know, imagine they're like assessing, I don't know, like, like when you, people come by like a, a place and they're kind of doing like a health check, you know, if like the health department was coming by and like doing a checklist on something or um, a teacher was getting assessed on their job. Somebody's coming to assess you. Um, imagine like the prophets are coming up to the, the nation of Israel and they're like, I've come to assess the spiritual health of this nation. They don't come by and ask, okay, is everybody attending temple service? Is everybody reading scripture? Is everybody praying? Uh, is everybody fasting? Is it, they, don't go, they don't go through the religious rituals. They don't go through the spiritual disciplines. And what they do is they go through and ask, are the poor being taken care of? Is justice being done? Am I seeing steadfast love for other people? Are the, the orphans and the widows being taken care of? They go through that checklist. And very often they go through and they say, people are being neglected. You guys are treating people horribly. You're not loving each other. Justice is being done. There's all this corruption and injustice and lack of love for all these people. And then God says, actually, you're still doing, you're still going to church services. You're still doing all the prayers. You're still going every Sunday. And I hate it. I hate it because when you leave that, you go and treat people like trash. And so when the prophets are going and they're assessing the spiritual health, they use justice as a way to do it. Because so often, uh, we can engage in those things. We can, we can use spiritual disciplines or religious rituals as our way of like, how am I doing with God? Okay. read my Bible. I went to church service and I, I pray. Like I'm doing all the religious rituals and spiritual disciplines. But then is that actually changing how I treat people? And if it's not, God says, I just hate that you're doing all that stuff because... It's not changing actually how you engage. It's not changing the way you live. You're not actually having a relationship with me. And so if we think about how we live this out, we have the receiving and the giving. How are we addressing the elephant in the room? And when our what we see in our own lives, first we have to address the elephant in our own lives. As we read scripture, how are we receiving? And there's this this quote of somebody who is defining justice, and he said, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And is there any... I just thought that's just a beautiful description of what Jesus did. Is that Jesus, the righteous, disadvantaged himself to our advantage. That if we look at ourselves, we have to be receivers of the, the correction that Mike is saying here. That you're unjust. That if we assess ourselves and say, yep, I'm a pretty just person. I just do it all well. We have to look at ourselves and say, I fail at loving others as myself. I fail at living out justice. And I have uh, 
disadvantaged the community and people around me to advantage myself. I've held my resources and I've you know, looked down on other people and we have to say, I need salvation. And who, who did that perfectly? Jesus completely disadvantaged himself to our advantage. That Jesus, uh, though he was God, did not come to quality with God, something to be used to his advantage, but he took, humbled himself and took the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus completely disadvantaged himself in order that we might be uh, advantaged and might be in his place. So we have to say uh, uh, that we deserve death. We deserve this destruction for being unjust people. And then we receive that correction and we receive salvation. There's nothing that we receive that. But then in giving, we should be the best people at receiving the correction that we're unjust, but we should also be the best people at giving it. Addressing an elephant in the room because uh, we're, we're oftentimes the worst. Because when we can identify with people's struggles, a fellow human, not looking down on people, feeling superior, because whenever we see somebody who, uh, there's an elephant in the room here, and I need to talk to this person about it, but we're never like looking down, and we don't have to be like afraid of like, oh, I'm, what if I do this wrong? Because we just assume, I am probably going to do this wrong. I've done it wrong a hundred times. We don't have to look down at them because we're saying, I've been there. I'm going to be there. Uh, I might be, I probably would be yesterday or 20 minutes ago. And so we come with this humility of knowing, I'm going to do it wrong. And I've been where you're at, and so we don't have to look down on people or be afraid. And we should be the safest people because we've messed up so much with God, and yet He loves us. And we also leave uh, the results to God as we do it. And as I was, I was talking to Bob, about this sermon last week. Rob's going to be preaching for me next weekend. Uh, so you'll be praying for him this week if you uh, want to as he prepares. And Bob and I, Bob, I'm thankful for him because he asked me something about justice in, in this passage and actually it led me to do this whole, a lot more study on this passage. So a lot of things I said today, thanks to Bob, of talking through it. And uh, um, he asked me, what, you know, what would we, how would we address in our society, and would we be addressing that? And he, he led me to uh, how Jesus in Matthew 5 talks about us being salt and light. So Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And you know, I think that, that applies uh, in large part, Jesus talked about us as being a community that's the salt of the earth and light of the world. And so we live this out of people who have have Micahs talking to us and saying, the elephant in the room here is like, you do not live out justice. You don't love your neighbors yourself. And you often turn away from God. Yeah, that's true. And you need God's grace. And the only way we get it is by turning, repenting, turning to God and receiving it. Wow, I've received it. And the only way you're going to be a good giver is of giving correction is if you've received it. Because you can now give the grace you've received. And now we go out. And what does the salt of the earth do? Salt is a preservative. has this flavor to it. And so we go out as people who are preserving justice and we're flavoring the world with justice. There's this community that's showing people, oh, this is what it looks like to have relationships where things are not crooked and being straight or treating each other with this generosity and treating each other with um, this uh, as image bearers. And also a community that's, oh, you guys are, you guys care about people in nursing homes? You give up your time for that? Or you guys are a community that is treating everybody of all colors equally, and you're actually trying to work towards that, and you actually care about that kind of stuff. You know, whatever it is, you guys are people who are actually 
trying to look for the disadvantaged or people living in darkness or people that are forgotten. You're trying to move into the problems of the world and people that are forgotten and you're, you're living it out in your community and you're trying to see that out in the world. You're the salt of the world, earth. And light of the world is, you know, it light both exposes and it draws. And so if you're out in the darkness, you're walking in the woods, as a, you're just walking around, you're like, I don't know where I'm going. If you see a light, you're going to be like, oh, a light. You start walking towards it. So that's what light does. The light also shines like, wow, there's a mess here, you know. And so we're doing that, and we're also drawing people in. And there's something amazing about this passage. I'll close with this: that we actually know the outcome of this sermon that Micah preaches. And if you want to turn quickly there to Micah or Jeremiah chapter 26. In verses 16, Jeremiah 26, verse 16 to 18, or to 19. Jeremiah lived about a hundred years after Micah, and he was preaching a similar message. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And then the people were like, uh, you can't say that. We're going to kill you for saying that. And then somebody's like, hold up. And this is what they say, verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moreshet prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And this is Micah chapter 3, verse 12. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of a wooded height. Verse 19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against him? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. So Jeremiah is warning them. You guys have turned away from God. God is going to destroy Jerusalem. And then the prophets are saying, we've got to kill this guy for saying this about the holy city and about the holy temple. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. Remember Micah? Remember Micah's sermon? What was the outcome of that? Remember he said this to Hezekiah and the people. Zion's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And what did Hezekiah do? He didn't put him to death. He feared the Lord and treated his favor. And then what happened? God didn't destroy it. God relented of the disaster. And there's actually this crazy story that's not just recorded in the Bible. It's recorded in other history books that uh, in 701 B.C., Sennacherib, the, the emperor of the Assyrian Empire, comes and he surrounds Jerusalem. He lays the siege on it. And he is uh, has surrounded. He's like, I'm taking you over. He has all these speeches. You can go read about it in Second Kings and Chronicles that he's let in, uh, I think it's Second Kings uh, 18 to 19. If you want to read about it, he's had it all surrounded, so he's about to take it over, and Hezekiah goes and prays, and then it says, an angel of the Lord went, it's a, Isaiah, another prophet at this time, at the same time as Micah, goes and tells Hezekiah, God has heard your prayer. And then it says, an angel of the Lord goes and sweeps through the camp of the Assyrians, kills 185,000 of them, and then uh, Sennacherib retreats. And then it's also recorded in other history books outside of the Bible that what happened? It says the, a, the bubonic plague 
went through their camp and killed all these people, so they had to end up retreating. And so it's confirmed outside the Bible's history and in the Bible's history that God got rescued Jerusalem out of this because Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He heard this. He's like, oh my gosh, I've got to repent of this. And so it's this, and then uh, it's this miraculous thing. And so what does Micah do? He addresses the elephant in the room. He's like, I just have to tell you like it is. This is this terrible thing you're doing. This is the outcome of it. But there's always the hope of if you repent, turn to the Lord, you can be forgiven. And God's grace and mercy are there. And so that's always the hope of what are we doing. It's when we're acting as people that are dressing the elephant in the room and telling one another, like, hey, I see you turning from God here. Or I see you not trusting in God here. Or I see you this sin in your life. Our hope when we're dressing the elephant in the room with one another is we want people to turn to God's grace. It's not, hey, you're doing this wrong. Or like, hey, you've got to clean that up. That's not what we're doing in each other's lives. Sorry to scare you, Heather. Sorry about that. That's not what... <laughs> I should do that more often keep people awake or something. But uh, that's not what we're doing in people's lives. Not with this judgment. And we also had this fear like, oh, I'm so worried about how they're going to interact. We have to tell ourselves... We have to get ourselves to a place where we're saying, I'm doing this out of concern for them. I love them. I want them to come and experience not the destruction that this sin or turning from God is bringing in their life. I want them to experience closeness with God, His grace and mercy. I want them to have this experience that Hezekiah had of turning back to God this nation had. So that's the hope I want to leave you with. Like You could have a Hezekiah story here. Like I told somebody this horrible thing and they had this turn. Even with people who aren't believers in their life. So let's pray. Father, would you let us grant us courage? Would you let us be filled with your spirit? That we would be like Micah, dressing the elephant in the room and not uh, moving away from that. Let us be people concerned who are in grief over people's sin and how they're ruining their lives. You fill us with your spirit. In the name we pray. Amen.